This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll have the author of Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. The book is published by Bloomsbury, and the author of the book, this really, really interesting book, is Ann Nelson. Ann, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks, Heath. Yeah, we just talked to you not far away, but we are separated by a phone call. I've, I've enjoyed this book so much because I've read so many other things that sort of circle around the subject matter, but you uh, don't stop at circling, you narrow right in. We're going to be talking about all the really interesting things in the book. Um, but for those of us uh, that don't know you well, what if you could just share a little bit about yourself, uh, where you are now, where you've been in the past. So share with us. Sure. I started out my career as a journalist uh, covering the wars in Central America during the death squad period. And I went from there to working in human rights documentation. I was one of the first employees at Human Rights Watch and then ran the Committee to Protect Journalists. Uh, after that, I taught this methodology and uh, I taught at Columbia for 20 years, first in the journalism school and then in the School of International Public Affairs, where I'm currently a research fellow. So a lot of my work was in research and research methodology on an international basis and then I felt a sense of urgency to turn those same skills to our own national situation. Yeah, and you, you sure have, and, and written this comprehensive book. The, the span of it is, is really pretty amazing. I want to ask you about that, sort of when this all starts and how far you go back into, um, uh, into history to write the book. But, but I wanted to start um, by talking a little bit about uh, some of the key terms here. Um, and, and it's one of the terms that's in, in the book, and it's um, one that I want to uh, give you the chance to talk a little bit about. So um, perhaps the most important in the book is, is this what you call the radical right. Uh, when you use this term, I wonder if you could talk about what you're referring to and who are the key players in this shadow network that, that makes up the title of the book. So tell us about what is the radical right to you? Yes, that's a great question because it's not a precise term. And this is uh, an area of national life where it's surprisingly imprecise in terms of the terminology. But for me, I'm writing about an organization called the Council for National Policy. It was founded in 1981, and it combined some forces that involved uh, some fundamentalist activists from the Southern Baptist Convention, some uh, conservative splinter groups from the Reformed Church and other other sects and, and denominations that, that wanted to roll back social policies that were launched in the 60s. It adds financial fortunes, 
some of which overlap with the fundamentalist groups, uh, the DeVos family, as in Betsy DeVos, and the Prince family, which she was born into, are major players. It also adds in some major fortunes from the extractive industries, especially the oil industry of the Southwest, Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana. Um, and then it adds in another component, which is critical, which is the political operatives, many of them coming out of the Goldwater and the Reagan campaigns. So what I found was combining the money and the fundamentalist uh, theology plus these political strategists gave them a power that's not always been apparent in American politics. Now, you already alluded to a little bit of, of uh, the sort of the history of this, but I wonder if you could even be more specific. You placed the founding of the Council for National Policy in 1981, um, but you're alluding to, to longer historical roots. How far back do you go? Um, what is the earliest point? Um, or, or is, is the Goldwater campaign the earliest point? Or does it go back uh, earlier than that? Take us to where you, you trace this shadow network to. Where does it? Where is its earliest starting point? Well, I look at its earliest manifestations in the Southern Baptist Convention in the 1960s and 70s. And I should explain that I grew up Protestant in Oklahoma, so this was happening around me. Um, and basically, all of the Protestant denominations, including the Southern Baptists, were liberalizing in the 60s in response to the civil rights movement and the women's movement and everything else. And there were several people in the Southern Baptist Convention that objected to this idea violently and decided that they were going to stage a kind of internal coup within the Southern Baptist Convention. And these two uh, men from Texas, one a pastor and one a lawyer, set about purging moderates from the Southern Baptists and installing allies, conservative allies of their own in positions of power and managed to really create a U-turn among the Southern Baptists that made it more homophobic, more restrictive on, on rights for women, um, and then really aspired to political power and a kind of domination of the rest of society. Uh, and they were able to join forces with the some of the people going into the Reagan campaign. So that's where I find the earliest expression. Yeah, this this sort of comes to its fruition uh, in the very early 1980s. And much of the book is the orbit around this organization called the Council for National Policy, CNP. Um, if anyone knows anything about the Council for National Policy, uh, it is that is the, it is the most important organization that you've never heard about, sort of its le part of its legend. Um, but but your book uh, 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 informs uh, really uh, what's going on here. So um, you've already talked a little bit about this, but who founded the CNP? Um, and, and were you able to figure out their purposes at the founding and, and what they intended to do to meet these aims? Well, again, there was a coalition that involved some powerful preachers, many of them broadcasting preachers. And you know, we had this period in the 60s and 70s where televangelists became very influential. And they built mass audiences that aren't always apparent to people on, on the East and the West Coast. Um, we're talking Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, and others. 
Um, and they really wanted to impose their vision on the rest of America. It was when they met up with the political operatives. Uh, one of them was Morton Blackwell, who founded a leadership institute to train and indoctrinate political candidates and campaign managers from the movement. One of them was Richard Vigory, who invented really uh, his own techniques of direct mail in political campaigns that were later segued into digital operations. Um, and another was the ideological architect of the movement, uh, Paul Weirich. Uh The fundamentalists hoped to roll back um, the advances in civil and political rights for the LGBT community. Um, they found uh, through focus groups and, and other techniques that abortion could be turned into a hot-button issue for their constituency. Uh, I found to my surprise that the Southern Baptists, for example, had become more and more moderate in their position on abortion, and that was rolled back by, by this movement. Um, but then when they joined with the money people and the extractive industries, uh, they also went into tax policy cut taxes as much as possible, eliminate the social programs that were funded by the tax base, and also eliminate environmental regulations because they were damaging to the profits of the industry. So they had this two-pronged approach, the social issues which they played among the electoral base, the economic issues which they played for, for the donor base. Um, and then the rest of the question was finding the mechanics of a highly sophisticated political operation that could win targeted voting blocks in swing states, in state houses, that could advance their policy goals. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, access to the media uh, is, is, seems to be one of the central strategies and um, areas of strength of this, this network. Um, but the network itself was formed long before the advent of Fox News and, and many of the, the digital conservative media outlets that we think of today. So what did that media landscape look like in the 1980s when the organization was just formed? And, and which were the media networks that they were most connected to at that time period that, that maybe we've sort of forgotten about? Well, um, having taught at the Columbia School of Journalism and uh, – worked in in journalism for much of my career, I have watched this kind of shift in our media landscape. So first of all, if you start in 1980, you're at the apex of American professional journalism and its audience. You have most American households tuned into network news at dinner time. So you have flourishing local newspapers with a with an ad base. And they're running national wire services. So even if you have major disagreements in public opinion about something like, like Vietnam, people are working from the same menu of facts and, and the reporting base. It's informed by the Associated Press and uh, the networks and the New York Times News Service. That is 
has, there's a there's another world of media that is outside that, which is local radio stations and and uh, what is called Christian broadcasting. A lot of it is should be better called fundamentalist broadcasting. Um, and over time, a lot of the pillars of professional journalism in this country have been eroded. Uh, you had the fairness doctrine, which required controversial issues to be reported on broadcast outlets and for both sides of the question to have time to respond so that the public is informed of two points of view. And, and what you have with the loss of the fairness doctrine in the 1990s is that the fundamentalist outlets can then present a totally one-sided picture of the world, which is in fact what they do. And they also found new profit models. Uh, so, so the whole world of, say, fundamentalist radio uh, just just mushroomed over this period. So you're talking about hundreds of stations, many of them in swing states, and their content distributed to several thousand stations in the United States, where there's no pretense of fact-based reporting and evidence-based arguments. Uh, and in fact, some of them boast that their reporting is biblically based. So uh, this has been a major influence in a lot of the country. You're talking about swing states where people spend a lot of time in their cars with the radio on. And you go from town to town in these states, and the signal for these stations is, is, is often continuous. Uh, in many states, there are more of these stations than there are, say, NPR stations, and their signals are stronger. Uh, then you add to that fundamentalist television and these powerhouses like Christian Broadcasting Network and Trinity Broadcasting Network, where you can be talking about an audience of 100 million people, and what they're getting is a one-sided presentation of partisan politics, where they're suggested that 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 God wants them to vote a certain way and it's never for a democrat. Now, one of the no what what you've been describing is sort of the most public facing side of this of this network, but much of much of the way the Council for National Policy works is is with extreme secrecy. And this in fact is one of the things they're most famous for. Um I wonder maybe you could describe in in which ways is the organization secretive? And how you, as a as a as a researcher, um, address this in trying to write this book? How do you how do you study something that has been so intentionally over decades been kept a great secret? Uh, so how did you do it? Well, it actually started as I was driving in a car in Oklahoma, having stumbled upon one of these radio stations, and of course, given that they're supposed to be religious organizations and they're tax exempt. Um, you know, if, if, if the radio station isn't tax exempt, then some of the people presenting the programming are corresponding to tax exempt organizations. And as a reporter, I, I call it, you know, tugging at a piece of string that, that led me to the CNP, which I had never heard of until I started this a couple of years ago. Um, then I, I went about finding everything I could online. I had some fantastic young research assistants who made a real, really great contribution to this. Um, and and I, I would describe it as just putting together the pieces of a massive, massive jigsaw puzzle. The organizations corresponded to it, which individuals corresponded to it, 
the meetings are secret, but occasionally they will have some aspects of the meeting which are covered in the national professional press. Uh, the membership is secret, but sometimes people will be identified uh, in, in the New York Times as a member of the CNP. And then the gold mine was that someone leaked a copy of the membership roster to the Southern Poverty Law Center from 2014. So, and it's, it's, it's lightly redacted, but, but the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, posted it online. So that gave me another major key to the membership. But uh, it really took a lot of dogged research. I knew as a, you know, I, I guess you could call my method a combination of my shoe leather reporting of the past and my historical research of my last two books, which were on resistance movements in Berlin and occupied Paris in World War II. So a lot of that involves uh, online research and archive research. But I also believe in absorbing as much of the ambience as I can. So I went to uh, conferences of these organizations as an attendee, just, you know, paid my fee and walked in. I went to church services of pastors who are prominent in this movement and sat and listened to the sermons um, and listened to what they were asking their, their uh, congregations to actually do in the political space. And I, I listened to hours and hours and hours of their radio and television broadcasts. Uh, many of their video presentations are available online, sometimes be behind two or three layers of a website. But uh, that was that was very valuable. So my, I'm afraid my book has a thousand footnotes. You don't have to read all the footnotes, but if you want to see where something came from, it's there. Now, one of the things we get out of this 2014 uh, uh, membership list is a recognition that this is not an organization of the past, even though uh, much of what we think about it and think of the founders as 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 cap as sort of trapped in the 1980s. Uh, this is an organization that remains today, and some of its members are quite prominent. I wonder if you can maybe we'll, we'll end our conversation on talking about this this organization, the Council for National Policy, and and how it's involved in politics in our time period right now in the Trump administration, for example, are there members of the CNP that are remain influential? And, and if so, who are they and, and what do they do? Oh, uh, absolutely. And one of the things that the CNP does is, is groom people for office and for positions of influence. Um, so they have a youth council where they have uh, younger conservatives that are are brought into the network and put in operational positions. Um, so you have several categories, and uh, people should realize that although they have been, I believe, very uh, significant in, in bringing Trump to power, he was not their original choice. In fact, uh, for many of them, he was their absolute last choice out of 17 possible candidates. And they were favoring Ted Cruz, but they also had been cultivating Mike Pence as a candidate since at least 2010. And when it appeared that Trump was going to take the lead, there was a, a massive last-minute effort to meet with Trump. And that happened June 21st, uh, 2016. And 
the Marriott Marquis Hotel in, in Times Square. And a deal was cut where Trump would implement certain of their measures and install them in positions of influence in return for their full support for his campaign. And one of those conditions was Mike Pence as his running mate. Um, so after that, uh, individuals who are members of the CNP, such as Kellyanne Conway, uh, Steve Bannon, uh, quickly assumed positions of influence in the Trump campaign. Um, he, Trump also accepted their request or demand to have his approval or his use of a list of judges for federal judiciary appointments. And those were generated through the CNP members um, who ran organizations, including the National Rifle Association, the Federal Society, and the Heritage Foundation. So after the first Supreme Court nomination of Neil Gorsuch, the White House posted a video of Trump meeting with the heads of these organizations in the White House, thanking them for their contribution to the process. So you see the influence all over the Trump administration. Um, another place is in his evangelical advisory council. So here you have Trump, a putative Presbyterian, appointing an evangelical advisory council, which is dominated by members of the Council for National Policy, and which is advising him uh, extensively on not just social policy, but, but foreign policy as well. They were pushing very hard for uh, moving the, the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. This was one of their big objectives on, on religious grounds. Tony Perkins, the president of the Council for National Policy and a Southern Baptist pastor and political activist, um, is a member of the Evangelical Advisory Council, but he was also appointed by Trump uh, to the Republican National Committee's platform committee, where he was writing social policy that was rolling back uh, civil and political rights for LGBT populations. So they're quite influential. And of course, right now they're uh, caught at a crossroads. Trump, whom they describe as not a man of God, but an instrument of God. In some moments, they call him God's wrecking ball. Um, Trump is in trouble. And they have their favorite son, Mike Pence, waiting in the wings. Um, I would give good money to hear what they're saying right now, but I expect them to be extremely active over the next year. Yeah, the, the book again is Shadow Network, Media Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. Uh, the book is published by Bloomsbury and the author who you've been hearing from is Ann Nelson. Ann, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Heath. 